Broadcasting from my living room in Moscow, Idaho. This is Camp Street Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 69, Racist, Sexist, Anti-Gay, Part 3. Sobering, precious seed in his hand Hoping and hope that he might see it grow Welcome, everybody, to the Camp Street Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. I'm your host, Keith Darrell, and we are one week out from heading to Nashville, Tennessee, which I guess technically now it's going to be Franklin, Tennessee, which is about 20 minutes south of Nashville, because Nashville, I guess, is still being kind of quarantined, which is limiting big events, but Franklin seems to be a little bit more wide open to the reality of us coming and spending some time with, I, I think, 750 people, 650 people are signed up for the event. So I look forward to meeting many of you there. I will be at a booth at least for part of the time. I hope to sit in on a handful of the talks and discussions and everything else. So one of the main things as I think I've been mentioning from the beginning that I look forward to is uh, Thursday night and the uh, hymn sing. Um, We didn't do it this year. Well, I guess we did kind of do it this year. But but last year's at Grace Agenda was one of my favorites. This year we uh, did it out in a barn at uh, a man named Darren Doan's house at last the prior year we did it at a pub in Moscow which was uh, quite enjoyable so we look forward to uh, that the hymn sing or the psalm sing is actually one of my favorite things uh, that take place uh, as a as a body of Christ when we're all together singing that and I believe there's 650 people signed up Uh, rumor might be that there might be a little bit more I'm not sure how changing venue uh, affects everybody Uh, hopefully not with hotels and costs and stuff like that it's not too far uh, from Nashville, but hopefully there's not any major problems there where we uh, lose some folks. But in this episode, this is going to be the last one of a part three series that I did through CRF um, called Racist, Sexist, Anti-Gay. And Aaron Ventura, who's the CRF minister here, we basically collaborated to uh, do a couple discussions and kind of lay out a little bit of the idea of critical race theory and the things we're going to be hearing regarding being racist, sexist, anti-gay. And I think uh, after last week, somebody came up to me at the end of the talks and was like, what's the main payoff for this? You know, there's a lot of information here, but what's uh, the main payoff? I think the main payoff in my head is understanding where the culture is at and yoking the idea of race, sex, and homosexuality. And as Christians, each of those would be a separate category. So homosexuality is in a uh, moral category. Uh, Male, female is going to be in a bit of an ontological category. And white, black race is going to be a little bit more in a social constructivist category, whereas our culture wants to collapse all three of those into the social constructivist category. So the idea of race is socially constructed, that there is no white, there is no black. And and I, I still think there is... Uh, and I don't know how to articulate this, I'll just, I want to walk uh, lightly, is there is some essentialist component, uh, I think, to being, uh, you know, oftentimes in the Bible, Jew, Gentile, those distinctions, um, I think, are covenantal, uh, but I think there's also um, something a little more going on. I don't know what that is, uh, but at the same time, obviously, in our baptism, there is no Jew or Gentile, um, nor male or female, but we still want to maintain that there's male or female. So we, what we don't want to hold, or is that what I don't want to hold, is that male and female is a, I want to hold that it's a creational ordinance, not a constructivist uh, idea, which is what the world is currently holding, going back to at least the second wave of feminism, that the idea of what it means to be male and female is largely socially constructed, which ends up uh, bleeding over into the trans movement, because if male and female is socially constructed, then I should be able to express myself any way that I want. And then finally, the homosexual 
heterosexuality is also, if that's constructivist, if our ideas of uh, heterosexuality and sexuality are socially constructed, then obviously homosexuality, um, any opposition to it is merely my social construct. And therefore, you know, they're going to want to claim that I'm bigoted and everything else. So the, the main payoff is understanding how the world is using terms. And in this talk, I brush on the idea of misogyny uh, building out of a J.D. Greer thing. And even the way the world's going to use the term like misogyny, they're going to want to make it systemic. Same thing with racism. It has to be systemic. Same thing with heteronormativity. It has to be systemic. So it has to be the nature of Western culture has been established a certain way and it needs to be overturned. So when I think of the payoff on this thing, hopefully uh, the idea will be when we hear racist, sexist, anti-gay rhetoric, we would understand where people are coming from who's using that language and where we want to go in the discussion. So in my head, that's going to be the main payoff. Hopefully uh, you get that from these talks. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, uh, I'll be back at the end and give you all the details on how you can do that with me. Uh, Here's the talk. I kind of want to start by saying, why why have we been doing this? Uh, Why race, sex, uh, anti-gay stuff? Why are these three things lumped together? Uh, And to kind of illustrate this, Keith, uh, will you tell us about uh, some times you've had some brushes with the law? All right. Uh, nine years ago yesterday, I was arrested preaching at Youngstown State University. And uh, I don't know what, like a week or so ago, I haven't pulled this thing out since I got arrested, but it's, it's the, some of the depositions around my speech. And so I, to revisit it was pretty funny. So uh, I'll give you an idea of kind of what's going on. So the, well, this person, it's kind of funny, the crowd started to become very insightful. I-N-S-I-G-H-C-F-U-L. They're filled with understanding. I don't think that's what they meant. I think they're, <laughs> I think they're, I think they're claiming I was inciting uh, the crowd, but they became very insightful. And, <laughs> and, and they concluded, because they understood what I was saying, you could tell it may take a turn for the worst. So that was uh, one per- person's eyewitness account. And then uh, they go on to say, the man's comments were very hate- hateful, and myself and other students felt very offended by his actions and approach to his speech. And so one of the things like, that I experience basically daily, and one thing you guys will probably experience as you begin to evangelize and talk to people who disagree with you, you're always going to get the broad stroke charge. Hate speech. Okay, what particular have I said is hateful? So when I'm out there, it's always hate speech. Well, what have I said particular is hateful? Everything. All right, well, if everything I've said is hateful, just give me one, and they can never give you... Uh, just one thing. And so keep that in mind whenever they uh, charge you something along those lines. And then here's another one. Uh, Keith Barrell's speech was inflammatory and deliberately targeted women, gays and lesbians, and even African Americans. At one point he said, slavery was not a bad thing. The language he was using uh, uh, created a threatening atmosphere that made me personally feel not only offended, but unsafe. And so I'm not that big, and I don't know if you've ever been to Youngstown, Ohio, but I would not be yelling, slavery's no big deal in Youngstown, Ohio. So, so the, uh, yeah, but, but that's the sort of stuff that like, they have to bring up to say, look, he's not creating a very safe environment. And let's see if I got one more good one in here. Um, okay, so again, here he goes. When asked regarding homosexuals, women, and other minorities, i.e., uh, oh, he began to make demeaning comments uh, on his, about his beliefs, including calling audience females WHRES. I never call anybody horse. <laughs> Damn people of different beliefs verbally. Ex- but this is the part that's kind of funny. Extremely adamant about his beliefs in a calm voice. <laughs> <laughs> Yet, he was upsetting myself and many other people. Um, people would yell, and I was clear he was creating a hostile environment. So, 
all the testimony is basically saying I was a racist, sexist, anti-gay. And that was kind of the thing that was creating an unsafe environment for any minority that was there. And obviously me being the bleeping white male, I had the privileged position that was in turn imposing myself on anybody else. So in general, um, I think that's kind of kind of something I, I experience daily is that sort of charge of being racist, sexist, anti-gay. And so this is your oppression. This. Yeah, this is, this. Th this is this is mine. I'm going to express your, your right daily now. identity. As yeah, my identity as a as a Christian white male is I, I get buffeted with that. So. Okay. So one of the things that uh, Keith. Uh, mentioned in I forget which talk it was, was there's this move from modernism to postmodernism. And if you're trying to understand what's happening in the, in the world, uh, these, are, these are words, these are philosophical categories. Keith, can you just re-summarize for us what that kind of move is and how it connects to this whole racist, sexist, anti-gay thing? Yeah, trying to make it as simple as possible is, so coming, so the Enlightenment happens or modernism happens, which is kind of throwing off the church, kind of after the Reformation or kind of even arising with the Reformation. Uh, kind of came modernist and enlightenment thoughts, like Francis Bacon, the rise of the like scientific revolution and stuff like that. That the world kind of became natural and secular. Prior to that, it was you know predominantly a Christian environment. And one of the things that modernism did was it enthroned reason. And through reason, we're going to have kind of almost infinite progress. The world's going to get better, better, better. We're going to get more science. We're going to get more advances, uh, longevity. We're going to cure poverty and all this sort of stuff. So that was kind of the idea of what. Uh, modernism and the Enlightenment was going to do. So they throw off God, man becomes enthroned, and what are we going to do? We're going to create a golden age. But what ends up happening? World War One, World War Two, And so in light of that, um, I would say, you know, we're now at a postmodernist element, but at that time there's a group of men called the Frankfurt School or critical theory, and we're going to brush on critical race theory in a little bit. But critical theory arose in the context of watching fascism come to power, watching Nazism come to power. And so what they looked at the Enlightenment project, which is largely atheistic, even though they were still atheistic, and they just saw, saw this whole project as leading rather to enlightenment than to death. So one of the things they would talk about is the dialectic of the enlightenment, which basically, oh, we have lightness, but what it really created was death and darkness. So if you look at the 20th century, I think like 156 million people were killed by governments in the, uh, maybe 300 million actually, but 156 million by Western uh, governments um, in the 20th century. So far from creating this infinite progress, we got a lot of death and everything else. So they wanted to throw off that and kind of set humanity free from the Enlightenment project. So that's kind of where the critical theory comes in, is this notion of liberation from these Enlightenment concepts. And so that's, and so even for example, and it's something that you're seeing now in a simple illustration, when I'm on campus, I can't use the term homosexual anymore, so that's kind of an Enlightenment category, that it kind of locks people into like a scientific understanding of who they are, whereas they prefer the term queer, because that gives you a lot more kind of leeway in identifying yourself in your social circles. So you can wake up one day, you're like, yeah, I'm a homosexual or whatever. And then the next day, no, I'm not. I am now this or I'm bi. And you can kind of be fluid in the whole thing. So they prefer a term like queer, which gives you a lot more leeway than something fixed like homosexual. So they would say that's too clinical and too scientific. So that's, you know, that's almost like an old school enlightenment term is to say someone's a homosexual and they're kind of moving beyond that. So that's the sort of the way that people are using language and it's constantly changing and everything else. So I would say that's a, a oh, and what they wanted to do is in throwing off the enlightenment, They've kind of thrown off reason because they said that reason kind of became like a god faculty uh, for humanity, but it doesn't exist. The, there, there is no god. There is no reason. All we have is our own personal expressions. So, okay. So, do you want to talk about social construction of oh, yeah. reality? Yeah, and then and another part that's important of that, and it's going to make more sense of where even like you know racism, sexism, and then the anti-gay thing comes in, is that our reality is socially constructed. So, who you are right now 
whatever you think of yourself, if you're like, I'm a female, um, they would say, well, you've just been given that category by your society, that you have no nature, you have no identity, until you begin to interact with all these social relationships here. And then once you begin to have all these social relationships, then you kind of begin to get an identity. So if you want to identify as a male or like more gender, they use the term gender, more male or female, uh, you're at liberty to do that. Even if like you're biologically female, your expression to the world is male. And so it'd be the equivalent, like if I became a police officer tomorrow, I could walk in here and I'm a police officer. So that's my identity in my social relationships here. Um, but that's not necessarily a fixed identity. I could stop being a police officer in two weeks. So they didn't want to say male and females in a similar category. Race, they would also say is socially constructed. And one of the important things for us in this conversation is race is so socially constructed. That's why you get whiteness and that uh, racism is systemic because race is something that white people invented in order to impose their wills on everybody else. So race is not a real category, but it's something that white Europeans constructed in order to impose their will. And that's why we have structural racism, because everything that the West has done by white people is for their control. And even, we'll discuss a little bit later, but even any moves, any success during the civil rights movement uh, was actually white people just shifting the board a little bit so they could keep their power and everything else. So you have, that's part of their categories we're operating with. And then obviously the same thing with sexuality. You have no, there is no natural sex. You just, you just express yourself uh, however, however you want to. And so this idea that being a homosexual, if Christians object to, to say sodomy, that it's wrong, that's us imposing our categories on other people. So that's the social construction of our identities and the world around us. And that, that would be a pretty key concept that I think might seem odd to you, but it's pretty vital. Like, I think two weeks ago I gave the illustration, like this room here, like MZ's gonna move out. Right now you call it the MZ building, in two weeks it's no longer the MZ building. If they put a restaurant in here, we call it a restaurant. So it all depends on how we're using it. It's very pragmatic in their approach. Okay, any uh, questions at this point before we continue on? Yeah. So, you said that even uh, using the term queer is more of what someone yeah, and that's it's kind of a hard thing. You, you kind of use a term, and you kind of let the audience tell you how to use it. Um, so I, I was up in New England, and that's when they were getting on me for using the home homosexual word. So I was calling someone a queer three or four years ago. It's like, you know, it's an offensive term. You know what I mean? Like, we used to play a game Smear the Queer, and you're not allowed to play that anymore. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so the term like that. Maybe you're allowed to have it again, I don't know. But yeah, so, so it's an offensive, it would have been an offensive term a few years ago. Now it's kind of um, a means of, uh, of recognizing their, their freedom and their liberty and their self-identification. So is that more of a, like a tactic to try to get on their side? Or like as Christians, should we be using a term that describes it more accurately? Yeah, I sometimes use the term sodomy depending on my context, uh, but I'm actually more comfortable with the term like queer because as a Christian, I don't think homosexuality is a fixed identity in the way you're using it. So, so depending on who I'm talking to and how we're talking, because um, I do think there's an element that, you know, you use the term like homosexuality, it does kind of have a fixity to it, you know what I mean? Uh, whereas an idea like queer is we can, as a Christian, I feel like I can work with that a bit more. Like here's what repentance looks like, here's what your baptism looks like, and Here's how, now in the kingdom of God, how you begin to express yourself sexually and everything else. So um, I don't necessarily have a huge problem with the term like queer. I feel like it gives me more liberty in explaining the gospel where I think something like homosexuality is kind of a fixed thing. And for me to come along, it's now conversion therapy. And it's me kind of trying to make a, you know, make a leopard change his spots, so to speak. And we know that can't be done. So Yeah, the other thing is 
queer is used as a culture, there's queer culture. So it's also a cultural category. So you could be um, like, you could be a homosexual, meaning you commit the crime sin of sodomy, but be excommunicated from the queer community because say you're a Republican. So there, there's certain things that go along with queer culture and queer theory that uh, are not identical to what homosexuality or, or happens in sodomy, and, that, and they police that, and, and they're constantly changing um, kind of what, what are the markers for you being a part of that queer community. So it's really helpful to think of all, everything in religious terms. So uh, because everyone is made in the image of God, everyone is a religious worshiper, uh, they're going to have kind of counterfeits of Christian church. They're going to have counterfeit sacraments. They're going to have counterfeit preachers. They're going to have counterfeit catechisms. And uh, th those are the markers you want to start identifying. And uh, the category I kind of gave you, and this is like the biggest category, is the category of religious humanism. So anything that is making man the ultimate standard over God, that, that's going to fall under the category of humanism. And then there's all sorts of species of this genus that is humanism. Yeah, let me just kind of add to that, that one of the things like you want to think about as you're evangelizing and talking to people, and even as you're thinking through your Christianity, uh, as Aaron was brushing on, everybody's going to have like a theory of the atonement, and the question is, where are they finding atonement? And so once you begin to talk to somebody enough, you begin to listen to them, and they're saying, you know, they're basically laying out, here's my theory of atonement, uh, then you can kind of bring the gospel to that. So a few years ago, I was at um, University of Idaho, and there was a young man who was like branding and cutting himself, and you know, the, the crowd was kind of going raucous, so he came up to me, and we are just kind of talking one-on-one, -on -one, and he was talking about cutting himself. And I was like, does that pertain to guilt? And he was like, yes. And so we started talking about that, and, and it was kind of a means of his self, like he's got to deal with his guilt and shame and everything else in some way, so here he is cutting himself and dealing with that. And so those are the sort of things that um, Aaron mentioned in the first talk, I think, that uh, Christianity, you have reality on your side. Um, and everybody out there is basically substituting the truth of Christianity with a counterfeit. So there's a counterfeit atonement, there's a counterfeit God, there's a counterfeit lawgiver. And those are the things that you're looking to basically call people repentance from, to the truth. And, and then even as critical theory attempts to give man liberation, it's actually Jesus and the truth that gives man liberation. So that's kind of our, that like, and once you kind of train your ear, like I can't sing a link, but once you train your ear to like hear music, you can hear things properly. Once you begin to tune your ear to listen to what people are saying, and where they're substituting their gods in, then you're much more free to interact with anybody. You don't need to be some genius theologian. You don't need to read tons of books. You just need to learn to listen. And the Bible tells us to be slow to speak, quick to listen. Um, if you learn to do that, then you can begin to apply the gospel to anybody you're talking to. Yeah. So tonight, uh, we want to introduce you to something called critical race theory. And I want to just get a show of hands. Who has heard of critical race theory before just now? Okay, it's maybe about half. Um, who's heard of white privilege? Okay, most, most people. Um, who's heard that you know, all white people contribute to and benefit from racism, that kind of uh, teaching? Okay. Um, what about this idea of divesting whiteness? You know what, that, that, that's a more technical term, divesting whiteness. What about uh, you need to decolonize your mind or decolonize <laughs> your Christianity? Okay. 
Um, what about decentering yourself? There's a lot of D's here. Decentering yourself. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example of so so. Even if you've never heard of critical race theory, if you've heard of any of those kind of buzzwordy type phrases, uh, those all come from, they grow out of what you could call critical race theory. Even if, and I'd say most people who are propagating these things or popularizing them aren't like critical race theory scholars. So a book like White Fragility, so you've heard of White Fragility. Who, who can tell me what White Fragility is? Does anyone know kind of what the standard definition of white fragility? Yeah. Oh, like, I don't know the definition, but the book talks mostly about why it's hard for white people to talk about why they're racist or something. Okay. Or like why every single white person is racist. Yeah. Why is it hard for us to talk about yeah. why it's hard? Yeah. <laughs> uh, any, any other people who are familiar with white fragility? Yeah. Yeah, like that. It's very fragile right now. <laughs> so uh, I remember when the when the protests first started happening, whatever, a, a month or two ago. I don't know how long it's been now. Five months now. It's been a while. Anyway, there's been different levels of protests. And I pull up Instagram and there's kind of a like uh, page for what I can what I can do to help end racism. Okay. And I pull it up and it's it's got your like intersectional check checklist. I got not just a black lady, but like a trans, it's like trans black lives matter. So it's not just black lives matter, it's trans black lives matter. And then I can kind of scroll through and see, you know, all of these black bodies, uh, you know, speaking truth to power or something like that. So this is just on, this is on Instagram, which I, I imagine a lot of you guys have. We have, we have uh, the university. You might know it as the Gram. The Gram. <laughs> the, kids, the kids call it. They, they know it as the Gram. They know it as the Gram. <laughs> uh, uh, I use this platform called Anchor. Anchor, and this is a podcasting platform that we use for the university podcast. And even within this little platform, it's not like you guys all use this, but there's a whole section for amplifying black voices. And so I go through it, and this is this is what is kind of the like banner page. So, and maybe has anyone else kind of seen this this trend? We want to amplify black voices and people who are kind of minorities, and we want to counterbalance this white supremacy that's that's in culture. So, um, if you've experienced or seen any of that stuff, then you have some contact with critical race theory, even if you don't know what critical race theory is. We're gonna tell you what that is tonight. So Keith, you would give us your brief intro, and then uh, there's gonna be some fun interactive pictures later on. So here's kind of the distillation definition of critical race theory. So going all the way back, if you remember talk one, communism is the attempt to liberate the proletariat. That's basically what com communism is. Um, and then and the who, and who's the proletariat? Oh, the proletariat is the working class people, and the bougie people are the rich people, or the ones who are the capital. I have no idea how to pronounce it, so it's bougie. Um, and so they're the ones who are in power. So now in our culture, it's the white people who are the bougie people, and the proletariat is the minorities, the women, and the homosexuals are the are the proletariat. So to so, be oppressed. Yeah, they're the oppressed category. So going back to just the basic idea that all of Western culture 
has been constructed by straight white males. Remember what I was called, uh, uh, you're preaching Christian supremacy, which is white male heteronormativity. Boom, we, con we constructed every single social dynamic in the West, according to them. So what critical race theory does is what it seeks to do is identify that whiteness in every jot and tittle of the law. So the First Amendment, white supremacy. Second Amendment, white supremacy. Third Amendment, on down, all those things, every jot and tittle is filled with whiteness and it needs to be deconstructed and needs and you everybody needs to be liberated from that idea of whiteness. So think of any law in the book, even when the civil rights movement was happening, all those things were really to shift power so that the elite whites, elite whites, but really all whites downstream end up benefiting. Um, that, that's why they're willing to even show their hand a little bit to the civil rights movement. So the critical race theory comes after the civil rights movement and it even offers up a criticism of that because they don't think they're going far enough in deconstructing the powers of Western culture and divesting it of its whiteness. Does that basic idea make sense? So when people begin to talk about it, uh, you have to realize, and that's why you're racist, even if you don't know it, every single word you use has been constructed by white males, and so the whole nature is just so ingrained and embedded in you that you can't escape it. And that's where it becomes a difficult conversation because it's at the deep level of like presuppositions is kind of where they're operating. It's, 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 whereas in the old definition of racism would have been like, hey, you, you know, racist word, or hey, you, gay word. Um, the, uh, whereas now it's, it's all the subtleties of you walk into a grocery store, you get said hi to, the black man does not, well, that's systemic racism. Or you don't get said hi to, he does, well, are they suspicious of him? So all those psychological dynamics are because of this omnipresence of race in every jot and tittle of our social relations. So, and one of the things when you read what their stated goal is, so what is the goal of critical race theory? So it was birthed basically out of Harvard Law School people, and they want to, they say race is just the beginning, it's just beginning of the struggle for overthrowing, they say, all forms of subordination. Yeah, Which, that's Mary Matsudi, Matsuda, who's one of the first critical race theory people. She's like the co-founder. And yeah, all forms of subordination. And that's why you can see how these end up getting intertwined with one another, because at least in theory, women traditionally in our culture have been subordinate to men, homosexuals have been subordinate to heterosexuals, and so these are all systems of subordination. So. Yeah, and we talked even about uh, in Kendi's book, where he says, if you want to be anti-racist, you must also be feminist. If you want to be truly feminist, you must be anti-racist. If you want to be anti-racist, you also must be anti-homophobia. If you want to be truly a feminist, you also must be anti-homophobia. And so they, they tie these all together, and you're, and you're sitting there going, well, what if I just want to pick, pick one? And you've seen, if anyone has seen what happened to J.K. Rowling, uh, who's a very liberal woman, just speaking out uh, against the trans community, uh, now she's she's now breaking those categories down in a way that they don't like because there's some form of subordination in which a straight uh, straight white female is oppressing anyone who's a non-straight or non-white or non-female. Uh, so does that that make sense? So so any any yes and no. <laughs> It doesn't, it doesn't. So basically, any hierarchy period in, in any social structure, they want to deconstruct that, and they want total uh, what they call total equality or total equity. That they want complete egalitarianism. Okay, so everyone's equal. And if you think about, um, do you think that's possible? <laughs> like, is that ever 
possible. And, and that's what they're continuing to bump into, this, this endless project, is they keep realizing, oh no, we can't do this because people are different. Men and women are different. They have, they have nature. So this is where they are doing the Romans one thing. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and trying to replace it with this new uh, vision for the future that is, that is utopian. Utopian means no place. It's, it's a non-existent place. And so kind of, kind of tied in from a Christian standpoint, at the very least, we have creator than creature. So Christianity begins with supremacy over here and then subordination here. And then the creator kind of plays everything out. So if you take humanism, and as Christians, we don't have like true subordination in the triune Godhead. We, we have a thing called economic subordination, but we'll set that aside for a second. But in the Godhead, you have, you have unity. You don't have subordination in the Godhead. And so if all of us are de facto gods, where, where do we get our subordination from? And so what humanism tries to do is set us, set us up as gods, and we can't have any divisions, and we can't have any disunity in the Godhead. So that's kind of, the, I would say, the theology that's driving it um, and that's manifesting philosophy and everything else. But th does that make sense of what's driving it? Because once you get rid of God, and who's God in their system? Well, man ultimately is. And if there's you know seven billion of us and different gods jockeying for power, uh, you know we, we can't have any division in the Godhead. So I would say that's a central element of the theology that's kind of driving the humanism. Yeah. Okay. I don't like sitting. I got to stand now as we get into as he preaches into our PowerPoint here. Okay, so uh, we want to uh, kind of help train you to, to look at a few things here. And uh, this first image, has anyone ever seen this image before? The difference between equality and equity, okay? So um, th and this is a pretty good graphic, right? But it's, uh, it's probably racist somewhere because uh, you know, baseball is like an American sport and that's rooted in white supremacy also. But for some reason, they're trying to watch the baseball game. and. Uh, everyone, equality is just everyone is able to stand on the box. But as you can see, young Shorty over there is just staring at the wall. <laughs> so, so they want to say, look, the, the tall guy doesn't need the box. He's tall. The, li the little guy does need the box. I like his hands in his pockets. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's sad. Yeah. He's sad. Uh, and, and so equity is when you redistribute the boxes so that you have equal outcome. And so if you're trying to understand what critical race theory, what people want right now. So what, what do the social justice, Black Lives Matter people want? They want everyone to be able to watch the baseball game. And is that such a bad thing, right? No, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with being able to watch the baseball game. If you were a good dad, you would, you would want equity more than equality, right? Now, uh, critical race theory comes along and it, it kind of has its, its other categories for explaining <laughs> reality. So, <laughs> so, this is, uh, so, so reality is white supremacy has given you a bunch of boxes, young shorty is in a hole. <laughs> and so, and so remember uh, Keith was mentioning they want liberation. So liberation, you actually just take down the whole wall, and I don't know, they can just run onto the field and start streaking and you get kicked out. But why does he have shorts on now? <laughs> so pants are awesome. <laughs> okay, so, so 
this is, this is another way of framing it. And you see, memes are powerful. Babylon B is doing a lot of cultural uh, heavy lifting with their memes. The left has memes, the right has memes, and this is one, one way of saying, you're gonna, you're gonna remember this. So when I say white supremacy, you should be thinking reality. You're standing on top of the boxes. And, and if that is true, if you, if you agreed with that, let's say that really is how things are, and you're a Christian, and the Bible says love your neighbor, can't you like give the little dude a few boxes, right? So you see how it can kind of manipulate you and persuade you that, yeah, don't we all want equity or at least uh, liberation? Um, and then you have kind of the, the, the right wing. Uh, okay, so, so, this, so this is what they're saying is when you, when, you try to get, when you try to get equity, you got legs uh, you know, here. And uh, Keith, do you want to talk about this well, a little bit? Why me? Yeah. Well, I would say, but if you think about it, if we're playing the game and you're going to try to square me up with LeBron James, I'm going to need some of that because there is no way I'm equal to him on a basketball, no matter what you want to do. So the minute we have different gifts and talents, and if you, and even, I think one of the important things for us as Christians, and, and I realize probably needs to be qualified at times, but we don't believe in equality. Um, if you just look around this room, we're all pretty diverse, and no two of us have the same gifts and talents. So you even think of Jesus saying, he gives some people 10 gifts, some people five gifts, some people one gift, and the guy with the one kind of buries it. So equality's fine, like when you're measuring sugar and you need cups of things and stuff like that, but when you're dealing with human beings, like everybody knows that there's different gifts and talents. And so this, this theory of equality, somehow you can be whatever you want, that's just not the case. Uh, sorry I let you down if you believe that. Uh, but it's not to discourage you, it's just to realize that like we're all limited, finite beings that don't get to express ourselves fully as we would like. And one of the frustrations we bump into in the real world is that we don't get to be whatever it is that we want to be. We're limited and we're created beings uh, with our divide, der derived identity. So um, so this is, when we're trying to get everybody equal in reality, I would, I would you know, it's pretty gross, but it is, the, I think, the reality of trying to get everybody in here kind of some level of sameness and equity. It just can't be done. So uh, even, for example, one of the things I want to complain about, and here's one of the difficulties, is most of you have probably grown up in marginally healthy homes uh, where what, I can't remember the exact word, so I'm, I'm kind of making up the numbers. But let's just say you guys are exposed to 1,000 words a day on average, whereas you take some other kids who are in poor neighborhoods, they hear 50 to 100 different words on a daily basis. So who, if you take that and project it over somebody's life, who has a greater advantage for the rest of their lives? The kid who's constantly being exposed to good books and good language and knows how to talk properly or the one. And so they always seem at a disadvantage. And so intuitively, we want to be able to help. So the question becomes, how do you end up doing that? But I would just say when we when we appeal to the state, what we end up doing is kind of flattening everybody in the process. So yeah. So kind of the classic way of distinguishing equity and equality is equity is typically thought of in terms of equal outcomes. So if you think about Keith against LeBron James, uh, so let's say they're on the level playing field. The hoop is the same height. The, they're using the same ball. But because because Keith is so much shorter and weaker and, and wider, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> what other things can I say about Keith? Uh, th there's an there's an inequity there. So level playing field, but there's an inequity. And who do you expect to win this game of, of basketball? Well, LeBron James probably ten out of ten times. 
And so, and so, and so if that, let's say if that's representative, nine out of ten times. So, so that's an inequitable outcome. And the question is then, okay, what is equity, and how do you get it? You could try to stretch Keith. We could hang him up and like break his legs and paint him. You know, we could do things to try to make Keith like LeBron James, but it's just it's just never going to happen. And so, in some ways, it's just easier to you know LeBron has to play with one hand behind his back or or something like that, so that we can have equity. Does that make sense? Okay. Now I want to introduce you to what I think is a much better way of just approaching these things from a more biblical. Standpoint. Okay, so these are, uh, I don't know if you guys can all read this, but I'll, I'll read this. So uh, this is the laws of equivalency in the book of Exodus. So you want to talk about biblical justice, you need to go to the law of God. So read this text. Uh, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the wo woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Okay, so you've heard of, Jesus mentions this famously in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? So this is called the, the lex talionis, and this is, a, this is biblical justice. So you want fairness, you want biblical justice, it's going to be eye for eye, tooth for tooth. However, there is false equivalency. There's a false way of carrying out eye for eye, tooth for tooth, which is what Jesus is saying. You guys are, you guys are misinterpreting the lex talionis. And there are righteous, true equivalency ways of doing this. And in this next verse, you have the example. So if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, what should happen? under eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Well, you would think that it would say he, the, the master should have his eye struck out, but that's not what the law says. It says, he shall, the master will let him go free for the sake of the eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. So this, that, that would be true equivalency, biblical justice here. It's not that you now knock out the master's eye, you actually, the, the slave gets to go free. So, uh, Can I just yeah. real quick? So any of the, the idea of eye for eye, tooth for tooth is that the punishment fits the crime. So oftentimes when you hear eye for eye, tooth for tooth, like, oh, you steal something, get your hand chopped off. That's not what eye for eye, tooth for tooth is. It's, it's you're, you, you, yeah, you have an equivalency between the punishment and the crime. So if you're like, you know, giving somebody 50 years for jaywalking, you're like, well, that doesn't fit the crime. And so, so the basic idea there, because oftentimes I feel like that this notion's abused into this horrible concept that people just run around and nobody has an eye, but uh, it's basically just saying, look, the punishment fits the crime. And so, yeah. So let's, let's do a few other examples. So it, here, if you hurt my wife and child, and this is how uh, a lot of pagan nations would do justice. So eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I get to now hurt your wife and child. So the, see how that's equivalent, right? Equal, that's equal outcome. But that's not biblical equivalency. That's false equivalent, equivalency. True equivalency would be, no, I actually, uh, the, the person who committed the crime, they, they're going to receive the penalty. Uh, so you knock my eye or tooth out, I knock your eye or tooth out, no. You said you go free. Um, here we have a, a law about an animal. 
Uh, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stack grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. So let's say we got a little arsonist on our hands or a little, you know, beast uh, freer around here. And it, and it either burns down your field or eats up your grain. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So the pagans, they would want to say, equal outcome, I get to burn down your field. And, and now you can see kind of that picture where the, the legs are chopped off. That would be false equivalency. That's a perversion of, of the lex talionis. Instead, restitution is made. So that's biblical justice. You give restitution from the best of your field. Uh, and then lastly, you have this verse uh, about uh, impartiality. You shall not circulate a false report. So you can't, you can't lie, gossip, spread lies about people. Uh, do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. So if someone's bringing false witness, lex talionis, you'd think, I can bring a false witness against you. Scripture says, no, you speak uh, the truth. Um, and, and then it ends here, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Now, uh, you think James is going to, the book of James is going to say, that the rich are the people oppressing the poor. That's typically how it goes. They're the ones in power, they can bribe the judge, and, and scripture completely forbids those kinds of things. And on this level it says, you shall not be partial to the poor man in his uh, dispute. Um, any other comments on, on that? Okay, so, so to summarize, what social justice, kind of uh, uh, critical race justice, wants totally equal outcome. And we say they want false equivalency rather than biblical true equivalency and we need to do the job of knowing what exactly that is because there are real there's real problems right when cops are killing citizens there's times when they shouldn't be doing that and we we should go to the scripture and say okay what what are biblical principles of policing what even should be a crime there's certain things in america that are crimes and we have tons of people in jail right now that you you are paying for these people to be kept like dogs in cages for things that the Bible would not say are actually criminal acts. And so Christians should be angry about that because that's, that's unjust, okay? Now, the way that the left may want to solve mass incarceration or some of these problems is gonna be very different from the way the Bible handles those. So uh, you guys should be doing the work or uh, be studying, trying to uh, offer, this part of your evangelism is offering what is a beautiful biblical picture of justice. That's what's going to, to win the day. Yeah, and intertwined with this, if you kind of are following the basic storyline, you had Christendom, then you had modernism, and then you have postmodernism. And so we're neither modernists nor postmodernists, we're Christians. And so we speak to both biblically, and within that, we're willing to grant certain strands of truth that the postmodernist is going to have and certain strands of truth that the modernist is going to have. Because when you're an idolater, you get some things right, but you're going to absolutize the wrong thing in creation. So the uh, postmodernist absolutizes the individual. The, the modernist was kind of absolutizing reason and stuff like that. And both of them end up in perversions and distort our social relations. And as Christians, we want to come in and speak to both of what the Bible says is life and life-affirming. So, Okay, I'm about to show you an image. 
And then I want a few people to just raise their hand and give me their, imp their you know, first impressions of this image that I'm about to show you. <laughs> All right, so just a few people, just like you're running, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I'm thinking and feeling as I, I want to know what you're feeling. <laughs> Any volunteers? Yeah, in the back. Tim. I can't figure out why everyone's laughing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, to, to the left. A yo plate commercial? <laughs> uh -huh. It does look kind the of like Franks and their yogurt. yogurt. <laughs> the Franks and their yogurt. Okay. Other, other, yeah. Uh, it's interesting that a legging company who sells $100 leggings says resist capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, others, yeah. I feel like they are trying to make it look very positive as far as bright lights and white. Yeah, it, it, does, it does make you kind of smile until you read, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it's for contrast. <laughs> yeah. I'm very confused as to how gender has to do with resisting capitalism. Okay. Well, in in general, the so like the old Marxists would say that the family structure end up being basically built around the idea of distributing property and stuff like that. So the women, they want to say the women became the property of men and it was a way to pass down your property to other people rather than everything being communal. So uh, the family structure as we understand as Christians in the Marxist and the critical theorist head is gonna be kind of a capitalist sort of thing. Uh, so that people with wealth and power can keep the power in themselves. And so that's where the family structure would come in. So you have to undermine it and deconstruct that as well. Uh, yeah. If you're working with gender, why don't you have a guy in the picture? <laughs> what is it could be. What is a guy? <laughs> Esten. So why can't uh, make the, this person look more androgynous? Okay. Yeah. So does this? Yeah. What gender does this person look like? Woman. Woman. Do, any any guess any, any guesses about her sexual identity? Is she straight? Is she gay? Is she bi? Is she uh, whatever the question mark is? Any? <laughs> any thoughts? Okay, so I saw this and I was drawn in. I said I have to know what this workshop is so I can address historical erasure and resist capitalism. Okay, now before we explain what these are, who can make a guess about what historical erasure is? Yeah, Thomas. Uh, probably like erasing the existence of homosexuals or whatever the different minorities, erase them in history and then just making about, you know, all we see when we study history is the white, straight white men and, yeah. you know, hear about what black people have done in history and what they've accomplished or whatever. Okay, yeah. Or like erasing the wrongs that white people have done to keep them in the, like, the most good people out of history, I think they're going to be Okay. Stephen? Oh. So he had it. Okay, so I, I, did, I went to the website because I want to go to this workshop. And, uh, and I wanted to find out more about this person. So I'll read this if you can't read it. So th this is this lady, uh, Rebbe Kern. Uh, fully integrated immersion is a 24-hour experience designed for yoga teachers and fitness instructors to explore how power, privilege, and oppression create unique impacts for clients, staff, and leadership on the basis of race, 
gender, ability, and social location. Each day offers a combination of live and pre-recorded aspects, including asana practices, meditations, discussions, inquiry, and group work. Um, and then you have the curriculum here, which, which looks fun. Uh, gender stereotyping and apparel challenges. And does anyone have that, uh, have that problem of like, okay, so actually I can't tell the story, never mind. Um, good thing I thought twice. Uh, uh, capitalism and appropriation. Uh, who knows what a pro cultural appropriation is? Cool. Oh, it's basically just when white people take something that's part of black culture and make it their own. So like if a white chick was to make like put her hair in dreads or something, she yeah. would be culturally appropriating that piece of black culture. Yeah. So if, has anyone ever been to Azteca on their birthday? Okay, it's just a, I guess there maybe aren't Aztecas around here. This is a Mexican restaurant, and on your birthday they come, they put the sombrero on you, they sing Happy Birthday, Feliz Cumpleaños, right? Uh, and and they you know give you so. I don't know if they still do that, because that seems pretty racist to me. That's, that, that would be considered cultural appropriation. And if you, if you keep like running it, you're like, yo, Taco Bell is straight up cultural appropriation. Uh, Americanizing Mexican food. But, but notice the suggested reading for this curriculum. So there, there's two books on there that we've mentioned, and one that I even uh, am reading right now, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, and if you remember what I talked about, so, th so this is, this is, that's a critical race theory fruit, and remember what we're talking about. We're talking about a Lululemon yoga pants Instagram little ad. And what do you have? When, when you look into it more and more, this is, this is how it goes, and then here's the best part of resisting capitalism. Uh, <laughs> The workshop does cost money, <laughs> 415. However, uh, there, uh, there are scholarships for BIPOC, uh, I'm guessing that's bisexual. bisexual people of color and LGBTQ people and gender diverse folks interested in fully integrated. Okay, so, so I, I just want you to start thinking more in these categories. So that was just a Lululemon ad when I was on Instagram or maybe I saw it on Twitter. Um, there's your example. Okay, here's here here's a glitch in the system. Okay, Has, did anyone see this when it when it came out? There's a little video uh, report. Okay, so it says Islam is right about women, and uh, let's just get a few immediate impressions of this image of this sign. They really took some time. In. <laughs> the font looks like Times New Roman or something. So, so let me read you the new the news article from the like this is so this local Winchester, Massachusetts. Islam is right about women. Odd sign sparks confusion in local town. This was this last year. A slew of controversial signs posted across one local town has been drawing more confusion than outrage. In Winchester, signs that read Islam is right about women or was right about women has residents scratching their heads to figure out exactly what the poster meant by those words. Winchester police and upset residents spent a good part of their Wednesday afternoon removing signs from several poles across the town. While offense to, offensive to some, police said that while it's technically illegal to post anything on a street sign, which I didn't know, uh, it's a tough law to enforce. 
Due to freedom of speech and because the signs in question aren't threatening, police say it's like posting a sign about a lost cat. <laughs> Have you found my Islam? Uh, while, while many say they are offended and bothered by the signs, others say they don't really know how to feel about them since the signs don't make a lot of sense. Okay, so th this is a, a really brilliant, whoever did this is really thoughtful. Can someone explain to me what is going on here? Why are these people not sure what to think? Uh, yeah, Thomas. Uh, you don't want to be Islamophobic. Uh, and so you can't criticize Islam, but then also Islam abuses women. And so it's this glitch in the system, as you said, of just confusion. Yeah. They don't know what, what to do. Well, like the sign, everyone's confused about what the sign says, but it's a big deal just because it says women in Islam. And so like, no one cares if that actually like affects them, but just because it says those words, they're like, oh, this is newsworthy. This needs to be everywhere. Yeah. Even though it doesn't matter at all. Other thoughts? Just uh, as a side, like, if you can step back, you look at this like, why do you have like these strange yokings, say, between Islam and the American left and all that sort of stuff? If, if you can think of the dominant power being white Christian males, they, they, it's called strategic essentialism. So in, in the simplest terms, when Hillary is running for president, what, when the feminists were all upset that a woman would not vote for Hillary, so what you're supposed to do is lay out every other identity of issue, because the most important thing was getting a woman in the position of power. So the one you can get these strange yokings of Islam and Marxists and you know, atheist, because the, the yoke is to, how do we deconstruct the power base that is the white supremacy? That's why you, in your head, you're saying, you know, these things don't go together, but in their head, they're all gonna unify in order to defeat the beast. So if we all, you know, when Russia and America united to defeat Hitler, why would they do such a thing? You know what I mean? Well, they thought he was the bigger beast. So what's the bigger beast here? It's the white Christian America sort of concept. So. Yeah, so what it's setting up, as Thomas mentioned, is, these, these right now in our culture, this, is, this was not the case uh, years ago, they're setting up a tension that you are feeling to say, I either am gonna be anti-women or I'm gonna be anti-Islam, but right now they're at, kind of at about equilibrium. And if you watch, uh, I encourage you to go on YouTube and type this in and see if you can find the original news article because they interview a bunch of people in this community, including they go to the local mosque and they interview this Muslim woman wearing the hijab. And uh, it's just funny because no one really knows, like the, the, the Muslims are like, what's, what's wrong with this? Do you think that what Islam teaches about women is offensive? And then other people are like, I don't know, is, Maybe there's something wrong with Islam, but they're afraid to say it, and all in the same interview. So think about if this said Christianity is right about women. What, what do you think would happen? Perfect down. <laughs> what if it said Christianity is wrong about women? <laughs> what if it said Christianity is right about men? Or wrong about men? Okay, so you, you kind of just uh, change the categories there and it'll start to reveal culturally like what's, what's going on right now, uh, what are the uh, alliances that are being formed. Okay, uh, I think we just have two, two more short ones here. 
Uh, so this is, this is Google. Did anyone hear about their, their changing the, the even coding language? So Stephen, uh, my brother-in-law, who you know work, works here at MZ. So this is going to affect you, Stephen, when you have to write code differently. So, so I'll read this. Uh, Google told employees to delete politically incorrect language from code. The cost of not doing this is the harm done to other Googlers, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here we go. All right, so, he, so here's what happened. Uh, the terms master and slave have long been used in technology to refer to a relationship between devices. Google is working to phase it out. <laughs> Among the suggested alternatives are primary replica, master replica, elder follower, or somewhat more creatively, master minion. <laughs> Uh, the frequently asked questions for the policy suggest there are greater than 100k instances of slave in the non-silos part of G3. Who can explain what that, what that sentence means? Who's a coding person? Non. Okay, maybe no one here. Uh, the document states that invoking slavery as a metaphor is insensitive, given both the historical brutality of slavery and the fact that this types of human rights violation still happens today. Another suggestion is to rename red line to priority line because redlining also refers to a racist practice of denying various services to specific, often racially associated, associated neighborhoods. A third suggestion pertains to the terms whitelist and blacklist, with a comment that this is not about the past usage or origins, but the connotations these terms have today. Terminology equating black to negative and white to positive troubles me, and I'd like to make sure we can write inclusively. Anticipating the objection that the usage of redlining, master and slave, and computing have little to do with the history of American race relationships, uh, the FAQ of the document says, words can have multiple meanings and origins, and while one person might not think about the sensitive, non-technical meaning of a word, another person might, depending on their background. The argument, I don't think of this word as a problem, should not exclude it from critiquing. Terms on this list should have explanations for why they're on the list and what other meanings or connotations they might have. So, you see how they are finding racism in ones and zeros. In, because that's, that's called binary. That's what everything is, it's just ones and zeros, and that's a form of subordination. Uh, Keith, any comments on this one before we go to the last one? Uh, maybe, uh, hopefully a funny story. Years ago when uh, uh, I, was, I was preaching at Cal State Fullerton, there's a, a Marxist girl who's like trained to be a Marxist, I guess, and she'd always come out and oppose me, and uh, she'd always start yelling on campus, he's creating a binary, he's creating a binary! So I'd hop up on something, it's a binary! And so, uh, so I started just calling her binary girl, and, uh, and, and it was kind of funny because it kind of diffused her whole thing. But but the whole dynamic was any sort of binary is oppressive. And if you think about it, it could be like if you have male female, all you got to do is privilege the male term, and the female it gets subordinated. Therefore, you kind of it's inherent to kind of uh, a binary thinking. But the reality of it is, we can't think in non-binary terms. Like it's every word you're going to use has a binary and so it's just an inescapable part of reality and when we try to escape it we have to do is just we do like the erasure thing they were talking about a minute ago like we have to try to erase all of reality and we just can't get there so yeah i think this illustrates the point that it is actually so ingrained it is true that hierarchy is totally ingrained in the world in everything like you you are here listening to me you go to class and you listen to your teachers there's a certain level of hierarchy and respect based on age and stage and office and and that's ines inescapable in this world and uh, the Christians uh, well Christians want to do something else with that so let's let's end with some tweets here and, and keep 
you, you wanted to break this down for us. What's happening in this tweet thread? Yeah, so um, J.D. Greer is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So he's a pretty influential person. Beth Moore, I don't know what her role is. All I know is that my Twitter feed gets lit up with Beth Moore stuff. So uh, I know some girls back in the days do revival study. But um, the thing that she seems to have been pushing more recently is almost like an egalitarian approach. So she'd basically kind of like be preaching at a church, uh, but they just wouldn't call it preaching type of thing. So there's kind of this subtle move of how much, uh, you know, how much ministry can a woman do in the church and stuff like that. So Beth Moore wrote a piece about um, basically being oppressed as a woman in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so she's like, plenty of men have treated me respectfully, but then she goes through all these how over the years she hasn't wanted to step on toes and how she's even like not worn high, like if she's gonna preach with me, she wasn't gonna wear high heels because she didn't want to be taller than me or whatever. And she goes through all these things, what she wanted to do to subordinate herself as a woman. So anyway, uh, I believe this one comes first. Yeah. Uh, Dave Greer gives her a shout out and says, thankful for Beth Moore's gracious and courageous challenge to all of us men. Misogyny must have no place in our churches. Um, and then we'll come down here. So Beth, she feels it in her bones. I love and believe this to my bones. Thank you, JD. JD says, after all, there is no such thing as a healthy church in which the men flourish and the women do not. It's something we all agree with. But one of the things they do a really good job at is painting with platitudes that no one disagree with. Like, if, if you're, by the way, if you are a guy in here, be like, no, 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 we want women oppressed. Like, come talk to me afterwards. We've <laughs> done something terribly wrong in the previous three weeks. If you're walking out of here with that mindset. So, um, so no man believes, or at least no respectful man uh, believes that. There are wicked men who probably believe this. So anyway, JD follows again. Thank you, Beth. Hoping that we are entering a new era where we in the complementarian camp, if you're not familiar with the term complementarian, it basically means that there's male and female, we complement one another. And so it's actually a response to feminism. We're afraid of the term patriarchy, so we come up with the term complement. Maybe we'll make it less offensive if we can say we complement one another rather than say, yeah, we believe in patriarchy. Um, so we in the complementary world take all of God's words seriously, not just the parts about distinction of roles, but also regarding the tearing down of all hierarchy and his gracious distribution of gifts to all of his children. Um, and so here's a leader of Hispanic Church. Ask yourself this part here, this letter part, not just the parts about distinction of roles, but also regarding the tearing down of all hierarchy and his gracious distribution of gifts to all his children. Is that biblically true? If you think yes, why? If you don't, why not? Oh, read the quote again. So, uh, J.D. Greer says, we complementarians need to take all of God's words seriously, not just about distinction and gender roles, but also regarding the tearing down of all hierarchy and his gracious distribution of gifts to all his children. We'll go, somebody back here, bro. Go ahead. I'm reconsidering. You're reconsidering? Okay. Well, I see examples of like church government or, you know, managed under the household, and we don't see any specific condemnation of slavery. So you have different hierarchies in the Bible. Mm -hmm. all, Christ is also our king. Yeah. And king over everything. <laughs> yeah, that's hierarchical. Yeah. yeah, and I think of Colossians 1, if you read Colossians 1, he's the head of the church, the firstborn of all creation, all thrones, powers, and principalities, and authority. So even, not just in the physical realm, in the spiritual realm as well, there's hierarchies. Uh, a little bit concerning when it comes to the family, because that's inherently hierarchical. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the distinction that the Bible makes about the church, government, school, and household. Yep. Uh, Jason. Uh, who's Jason? Oh, back here. Um, well, on that distribution of gifts, uh, like if God believed in like the distribution of gifts to all his children, then would he have to include all humanity in that? 
or like is he is he going to save everybody in that sense or are only certain people going to go to heaven yeah and we would not be universalists but if you are a universalist come talk um, <laughs> and so we uh and so yeah so i would say these two things so as you guys point out in the family in the church um, even the Westminster Confession talks about uh, duties of inferiors to superiors, uh, superiors to inferiors. And then also the idea, so, so first of all, it does not tear down all hierarchies. It's plain and simple. And, and one of the key things, uh, even on a term like misogyny, there's a woman named Andrew Dworkin who's like a second wave feminist. And one of the things that's great, actually, if you go read some feminists and you read, yeah, just read what they say, like, in some ways they're at least honest and they put their cards on the table. But Andrew Dworkin uh, says this, uh, that uh, a deep ingrained prejudice against women informs aspects of, uh, of society from legislation to cohabitation. As women, we live in the midst of a society that regards us as contemptible. We are despised. We are the victims of continuous, malevolent, and sanctioned violence against us. And if you read the Black Lives Matter stuff, it's basically almost verbatim, it just changes, you know, who the group is. And so the point with all this is like, this is into the church, and as Christians, even terms like racism and misogyny, I realize like it seems crazy, but like I just won't use a term like misogyny because because built into that is if I make any distinction between you and me, that's misogynistic. So as the church makes distinctions between the roles of men and women in the church, given feminism, like Andrew Dworkin's understanding of what misogyny is, the church is inherently misogynistic. Um, whereas what we want to maintain is what misogyny is, is expecting women to be men and men to be women. That would, like, that would be missing from free. But the, the, when you expect them to be something other than what they are, that's real misogyny. Um, so terms like misogyny and even the way racism is being used are almost completely unhelpful terms. And finally, just regarding the gracious distribution of his gifts to all his children, Paul's whole understanding of the body of Christ is not all gifts, not everybody's given equal gifts. And that's why even Paul says some parts of the body need special attention because we're not all equal in the body of Christ. And so there are some people here who might be like, I don't need a lot of attention because of whatever gifts of talents or whatever, but other people here may in other regards. So that's the sort of stuff that like, this is creeping into like major main, on, main line denominations that have been ostensibly conservative throughout their history. And now they're even kind of getting kind of woke these sorts of things. And so you just have to be aware of what's going on. Uh, we got time for just a couple questions here. Yeah. So I was talking to a guy uh, a week ago for several hours and one thing he brought up was uh, a critique of the law of equivalency yeah. and the in general the golden rule. He said, you know, well what if what if I'm fine with people punching me in the face and I just go around the street punching people in the face because, you know, well you know, that would be really equity and equal outcome. But what would be a good response to that? Uh, we would not want to separate love from the law. And so Jesus says, if we love you, will obey my commandments. In Romans 13, when Paul lays out the duties we have towards one another, he lays out the law towards one another. Don't steal, don't uh, you know, lie, those sorts of things. So what we don't want to, even with the golden rule, it's not an abstraction, but it's set in the context of uh, you know, Torah and everything else. So, so we often just make it this kind of existential thing about how I feel, or we make it very selfish, well, doing others as you had to do unto you, but I would never want to separate it from Torah and the law and stuff like that. So. And Macon actually, uh, actually answers that in Christianity and liberalism, and, and, he, and he just points out that the, that golden rule is given to righteous people. So if the drunkard's like, Hey, I would really like another drink. You should you should give me a drink. I would appreciate that. That doesn't because it would violate the law. 
the law, and that's what Jesus says is the love is the fulfillment of, the summation of, uh, it would fall outside of that category. So, yeah, kind of build on that a little bit is, is what the humanist wants to do is abstract the Bible from God and redemption. So you get these things like universal law, just love all, we're all the brotherhood of all mankind. Whereas Christians, we say, no, that you have the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. You know I mean? You have two different seeds in history that are battling out. So I'm not the brotherhood of all mankind. And I realize that sounds like madness to so many ears that I would not step back and say, no, we're all brothers, you know what I mean? Because some people are going to end up in hell and some don't. And so there's a guy, uh, Dewey, I believe it was, um, and he had a critique of Christianity in the democratic society. It's against the democratic ideal. Because history ends with people going to heaven and hell. And so history doesn't end in equality from their perspective. And therefore, we have to do away with supernatural Christianity because history doesn't end with what we're trying to get at with the democratic ideal. So, All right, one other question. Oh, do you, do you have, this is a follow-up. Yeah. Okay, sure. <laughs> I'll let someone else ask. Okay. Any other questions? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so the same guy also had another critique. Uh, when he said that Christianity is basically just a cult, and uh, in specific, he said, you know, the, the hierarchy, you're just, you're just serving, uh, you, you're just... Uh, it's just following pretty much blindlessly the what whatever the leaders say, and get, try trying to have make him understand that that's not actually what is happening was hard to do. So, is there another way to go about showing him out Christianity is not a cult? Uh, well, uh, that's your definition of cult. I mean, right. that that is I don't know, maybe we're a cult, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 but I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would say the, the, what we seek to point out is, first of all, in Christianity, we're not like the Gentiles, so we don't seek the Lord over other people. Uh, we have the Most High God who became a man, suffered at the hands of men, and died on death, uh, suffered to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so when, it, when you look at Christianity, it's not primarily authoritarianism. Even our God came and served, he washed our feet. And so the, the very nature of Christianity is not authoritarianism. Um, and if you're you know, going back in its first century context through the Roman Empire, um, it actually undermined the Roman Empire. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a thing that you gave people. You're, you got a new allegiance. Jesus is Lord, not Aaron, not Keith, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. And then you kind of have your conscience bound to him. So uh, Christianity talking but that goes back to the idea that everybody has some Lord. Bob, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan says you got to serve somebody. So you're either serving the living God or you're serving yourself. You're, there's something you're serving. Something is your Lord. We come along and say Jesus is Lord. He loves you. He cares for you. He washes your feet. Unlike any other Lord out there. And so um, we think it's a good confession and it's a good way to live. And it goes back to because it's reality. So. Yeah. All right. Uh, why don't we sing, uh, stand, sing the doxology, and then we'll get out of here. So that is the last and final installment of Racist, Sexist, Anti-Gay. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations regarding any of that, um, feel free to reach out to me, Keith at CampusPreacher.com, uh, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, Campus Preacher on uh, Instagram, and then Keith Darrell on Facebook. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Look forward to seeing you. precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom.